Hear the word of the Lord. After saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, we sailed straight to the island of Kos. The next day we reached Rhodes and then went to Patara. There we boarded a ship sailing for Phoenicia. We sighted the island of Cyprus, passed it on our left, and landed at the harbor of Tyre in Syria, where the ship was to unload its cargo. We went ashore, found the local believers, and stayed with them a week. These believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. When we returned to the ship at the end of the week, the entire congregation, including women and children, left the city and came down to the shore with us. There we knelt, prayed, and said our farewells. Then we went aboard, and they returned home. The next stop after leaving Tyre was Ptolemaeus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stays for the day. The next day, we went on to Caesarea and stayed at the home of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven men who had been chosen to distribute food. He had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. Several days later, a man named Agabus, who had the gift of prophecy, arrived from Judea. He came over, took Paul's belt, and bound his own feet and hands with it. Then he said, The Holy, Script- the Holy Spirit de- declares, So shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But he said, Why all this weeping? You are breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be jailed in Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. When it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, he gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, sojourn. Peace be with you. Good to see you. Uh, My name is Jonah. If you're visiting with us, I'm one of the pastors. Uh, I was preaching in uh, Louisville last week, and um, it's good to be back, is all I'm going to say. Good to be back. Uh, quick update. Um, again, if you're visiting, we're, uh, we just got done raising a whole mess of money to do a bunch of building renovations. Did you guys notice all the construction happening when you walked in? Yeah, we decided we, decided we would just give up construction for Lent and just push it all back. That's what we're doing. So there's the building update for you. Uh, just kidding. That's not what we're doing. Um, but we continue, same essential update that Travis gave last week. Uh, there continue to be delays with the architect. So we're at the, the mercy of the architect. So uh, if, you, if you pray, um, which you're at church, so I hope you pray sometimes, uh, pray that the architect would finish the drawings that we thought were done a long time ago that are not done now. Um, so pray that those would get done. They're supposed to be done maybe Monday. So that... That's pretty much what we're waiting on. So pray those get done, and then pray for um, the, what's a fun way? To, I was trying to think of a silly way to put it. There's just been lots of uh, uh, power walking in the halls of the offices this week, um, lots of breathing exercises, uh, trying to manage anger and have cordial phone conversations and stuff like that. So we want to honor the Lord and how we handle disappointments. And uh, I would say Papa Bear in particular, if you know what I'm saying. So... Uh, you know, pray that we would be Christians about how we handle being angry. Uh, so that's the update where we are for now. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more on Wednesday night. So we've got a, a member meeting Wednesday night. If you're a member, come Wednesday night. If you're not a member, become a member. Uh, there's the sales pitch. If you don't know what that's about, um, 
I'm guessing someone within three seats of you knows what being a member is, and just say, hey, what's being a member all about? And they'll give, they'll give you the pitch, and we'll see if you're interested or not. All right? All right. Hopefully, we got a more exciting update for you on that front this time next week, because we do this every Sunday, if you didn't know, every Sunday. And you're like, man, really? Every Sunday? Yes, yeah, it's awesome. Every Sunday. It happens every Sunday. Come on back. So, uh, speaking of something that happens every Sunday, the book of Acts, every Sunday. It seems like we've been in here for a minute. Anyone else feel like we've been in Acts for a long time? Long time. It's nearing the end. Uh, for, when I first started preaching at Sojourn, I thought it was so cool because we would preach stuff that hardly anybody else preached. And if you go try to find someone who does like a 50-week series on Acts, like nobody does it. And uh, we've listened to a couple of guys that were like, yeah, we're going to preach through Acts. It's going to be incredible. And they get to like week four. And they're like, the Lord told us to stop preaching Acts and do something different. And it's like, no, it's just kind of boring. It's just like repetitive and gets a little old. Uh, not here though. It's been fresh and exciting the whole time. Uh, but we're nearing the end. Uh, and chapter 21, uh, is it marks a bit of a transition in the book. Uh, and as I've reflected on, I think there's a lot of ways that the, the flow of Acts, kind of the timeline of Acts, you, you could impose on it or, or look at it as kind of a timeline of some of the normal rhythms of the Christian life in general, some, just kind of the normal development of, of what happens. It, it puts it on kind of a big scale, uh, but it, I think you can put your own personal story on it too. And, and so here's, here's what I mean. Uh, the book of Acts starts with Pentecost where everybody's on fire. Maybe you've heard that phrase, like on fire for Jesus. Uh, they literally had fire over their head. Uh, typically, not for everybody, but a lot of the time when you first come to faith, it's exciting and you're filled with passion. Um, there's a lot of growth that happens both personally. You know, you're learning a lot of stuff and you're fired up about it. And that's also, for a lot of folks, you see a lot of fruitful ministry work happening right off the front because you're on fire for Jesus, right? You just get a lot done and you go out and you, and you make it happen. Um, the early years of our Christian life are often marked by rapid growth and excitement. And in the early stages, the first few chapters of Acts, you see this passion filling the church and it's growing at just a rapid, rapid rate. And there's a lot of personal change that's happening. Uh, the middle years, like the middle chapters of Acts, are kind of the busy years. Uh, you see less discoveries being made or less like epiphanies happening. And there's more uh, people staying put for long periods of time or long deliberations happening. You start seeing all the pastors gathering together to to answer questions like how should the church be run? Or what do we think about these kinds of things? What do we think about doctrinal issues? More long, kind of sober, deliberate conversations. Uh, so it's, it seems to be less about learning and more about clocking in. And to me, the, the middle chapters of Acts feels kind of like your 30s, like you're, you're out of school and it's less about excitement and a whole bunch of new stuff as it is you just kind of go to work every day. You know what I mean? There's a load to carry and, and you just... You just do it, and you spend a long period of time doing the same thing. And this is what we see happening with the church planters and the leaders in Acts. And, and here in, in chapter 21, uh, Paul is coming to the end of both his life and his ministry. Um, he's sort of entering the golden years, right? He, he's, he gets that discount at uh, Golden Corral now, right? He gets the senior discount. Um, and in these golden years of your life towards the end, there, there tends to be, yeah, a lot, a lot more free time in some instances, um, but, but also a lot more uncertainty. There can be a lot more loneliness, and often there's a lot more pain. Um, 
And there can be a lot more physical pain, but also a lot more emotional pain too. Uh, I became a Christian at a summer camp. So when you hear all the jokes about like the summer camp, youth group high, like that's me. Um, Much of my Christian experience was built on uh, chasing that on fire for Jesus experience. And if you don't know what that is, or you need church, you're like, what? I went to church for the first time and they talked about setting yourself on fire for Jesus, right? Like Christians say weird stuff sometimes, I get it. Uh, Being on fire for Jesus is that feeling where it's like your bones are just on fire with the presence of God. Like he just, it's just so real to you. It's more real than your own skin and, and the whole world looks different and you just can't keep it in. You feel like if you don't talk about Jesus or you don't do something, you're gonna explode. And much of my Christianity, and I think a lot of kind of modern Protestant Christianity has been built around chasing this kind of feeling. So if you're not on fire for Jesus or uh, you're not out there, whatever, changing the world, um, something's wrong. Um, You're missing something or you're backslidden is a phrase that I hear a lot around here. And I felt it in my own life. When I'm not burning with passion like that, you start looking around. What have I done? Uh, What's the sin? What's the thing that now God's mad at me for? Maybe I need to read the Bible more. Maybe I should be praying more. Or maybe, oh man, three weeks ago when I looked at that, whatever, when I said that thing I shouldn't have said to the person in the checkout aisle, or man, God saw in my heart what I was really thinking about that person who made an illegal left turn going down Charlestown Road, or you start hunting your life, thinking through all these reasons, then all of a sudden, God is mad at you. So I love being on fire for Jesus, to be totally honest. Um, If I could have my way, I think I would choose for that feeling to be how I felt the whole time. Um, I think those times are good. I think those times are to be expected in the Christian life. If, if someone said, I've been a Christian for 60 years and I never had a time like that, never had a time where Jesus felt so close to me like that or um, whatever. I just, never, I just never felt that kind of passion well up in me to want to know him that would be concerning for me. So I'm not downplaying being on fire for Jesus. Um, It's normal and it's good. But there's another part of being a Christian that is also normal, but doesn't get much airtime. At least it hasn't in my life. And that's the part of being a Christian where we're confused and where we get conflicting messages and where it's often painful. We see, we see this in, in chapters, I mean, pretty much 21 to the end of the book of Acts. Um, we're we're going to look at today Paul's incredible willingness to endure pain. And my, my hope is that we'll, our perspective on pain will shift maybe just a little bit. Uh, and maybe we'll see that pain um, is, is, is a normal part of the Christian life but also that pain provides us with, I would say, an unparalleled opportunity to both proclaim the goodness of Jesus and experience his presence. 
And, and there's ways that we experience the nearness of Jesus in our pain that we simply don't anywhere else. We see it play out in the story of Paul this morning. And it's something I wish I, it just would have saved me so much heartache if I could have heard, man, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So last week, Pastor Travis looked at uh, the end of Acts 20 with us. And it's where Paul is saying goodbye to the elders in Ephesus. These were his closest friends. He'd been with them for three years. They had seen incredible ministry happen. And at the end of chapter 20, you can go read this at home if you'd like, um, or you can read it right now. If you don't want to listen to the sermon, that's fine. Uh, You can read it. And they have this heart-wrenching goodbye at the docks. They're crying. They're hugging on each other. It's like both this real intense, beautiful, but slightly awkward goodbye, right? It's kind of awkward you want to be a part of, but watching it makes you kind of uncomfortable. And so they're hugging each other, crying, kissing each other, saying goodbye. Um, Verse one of chapter 21, uh, some translations will will render it, uh, they had to tear themselves away from the Ephesian elders. That's the sense going on in the original language. They had to tear themselves apart. I mean, have you ever had a goodbye like that where you know you have to go, but you really want to stay? And it's just that feeling of being pulled apart from one another. So this, this journey that Paul's about to go on here that he knows is heading towards the end of his life, it begins with pain, emotional heartache as they're pulling one another apart. They get on a boat and there's no outbound motor here, right? This is a few thousand years ago. So they're waiting on the wind. They don't go very far. They go a few miles. This is a side note, but you can go here. You can get a map out and you can follow along and see these places that they're going to. This is a real journey that took place. Uh, This is real history, and it's one of the coolest parts about the Bible. You can follow along and confirm and see all these cool places that these guys went to. So they make their first stop a few miles away, and they find some Christians as soon as they land, and watch what happens. Verse 4, it says, uh, they they spend a, a few days there, and then these believers come to Paul. It says, these believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. So here begins what are maybe some of the most confusing chapters in the New Testament. If you read uh, if you read Acts chapter 20 and you read Acts chapter 21, uh, it's very, very strange if you just take it at face value and follow along. See, you got these people who love Paul and it says in the Holy Spirit or they've got this message from the Holy Spirit and they say to Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. What's strange about this is the whole reason Paul had this heartfelt goodbye in Ephesus with all of the tears, they tore one another away, is because Paul was told by God to go to Jerusalem. You got conflicting messages that are apparently both coming from God here. If if you, again, you can go read all of this. It's in your Bible. It's Acts chapter 20. Um, Paul says it a few different ways. In verse 22, he says, Again, this is in his farewell to these guys back in Ephesus. He says, now I'm bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead of me. So essentially, the Holy Spirit told Paul, you got to go to Jerusalem. And just so you know, you can expect to go to jail and you can expect to suffer on his first stop of the journey, Christians come to him 
and say, Paul, Holy Spirit said, don't go to Jerusalem. I thought about making this a whole sermon on what to do when someone plays the God card on you. Anybody ever had the God card played on you? Yeah, two people. Okay. Whatever, man. I get the God card played on me all the time around here. What do you do when someone says, well, hey, God told me. As a side note, this is he who has ears to hear, hear. Ladies, if a boy plays the God card on you, walk away, okay? God didn't tell him that you have to date him. I'm just gonna make that a blanket statement. Most of the time, that's true. A couple of guys over there are like, yes. I say that for your daughters. What do you do? What do you do? It's a tough spot when someone drops the God card on you, especially when you have a sense that God's dropped a God card on you. Well, Paul decides to press on. He receives this message. We're not totally sure what he thinks of it or makes of it, other than to say he continues his journey on towards Jerusalem. He gets to the next spot. Uh, They find some more Christians. It's fascinating. You watch Paul's journey as he knows it's gonna get tougher and tougher. His first stop, he's always like, where are the Christians at, right? He's always finding the Christians. And then he, he settles into community. They spend a few days there. And then here comes this dude, Agabus, Agabus, uh, tries to start a drama ministry or something. I don't know. Some of you have had an awkward community group. Don't say amen, right? I just know you've had an awkward community group. Probably not this awkward as what Agabus does here. Um, He comes up to Paul and takes off his belt. That's weird. It's like, well, in a different culture, you know, hey, man, don't give me the culture stuff. That's weird. You go up to a dude and you take his belt off. That's weird. Now, what he's doing is, uh, it happens all, this kind of stuff, not necessarily taking a dude's belt off, but um, you see it in Isaiah, you see it in Jeremiah, you see it in Ezekiel. Like, all these Old Testament prophets would give a prophecy and they would physically act out the prophecy to try to, put real weight on it. I mean, this is, this is a God card that he's playing, acting out the, uh, the prophecy here. Um, this is, again, he, he's saying, I'm just like Isaiah. I'm just like Ezekiel. I'm doing the same thing that the Old Testament prophets would do. It happens over and over in the Old Testament when these guys would act out their prophecies to put extra weight, extra authority behind it. So this is Agabus about to drop a God card, but he's putting a bunch of extra authority on it by doing the stuff that only the Old Testament prophets would have done. Something that all, it would look really weird to us today. Um, the Jewish people in the room would have been like, oh boy, this is real. Like, this is serious. So he takes his belt off and it says he ties himself up with it. It says it started with his feet, which I think is hilarious. And you imagine he's got to do some like teeth stuff with his hands. How do you tie both your hands up with your hands? And then laying there on the ground, hogtied himself somehow, he says to Paul, the Holy Spirit declares, so shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. You notice Luke, who's writing this, includes himself there. When we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. 
not just blaming like these new Christians. It's, it's even Paul's companions, even his buddies that are traveling with him. So you got Paul with his one opinion over here and then everybody else saying, Paul, you, you, gotta, you gotta not do this. This phrase that Agabus uses, the Holy Spirit declares, or some translations will say, thus says the Lord. It's, it happens over 300 times in the Old Testament, almost always from the prophets. Again, this is another God card that Agabus is playing. He's, he's using the behavior of the prophets and the language of the prophets, all saying with a ton of authority, this is coming from God. And then everyone in that room who all, they all love Paul and he's got his close friends with him are begging him not to go. What do you do? You ever have friends give you conflicting messages? You ever get like 15 people giving you advice? <laughs> what do you do? They all love you. They all sound pretty wise. You ever, you ever have multiple people drop the God card? Well, I really think God wants you to blank. Well, I think God told me to blank. Well, God really wants you to, what do you do? Twice in a few weeks, Paul gets these prophecies. Twice in a few weeks, people who love him are begging him not to do what he knows God told him to do. What do you do? Well, look at what Paul says to them in verse 13. He said, why all this weeping? You're breaking my heart. I'm ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. This wasn't easy for Paul. This isn't like a flippant conversation for him. I mean, he says, you're, you're breaking my heart. You're, you're weakening my resolve. You're discouraging me. But he wasn't persuaded. This doesn't stop him. What's, what's going on here? Well, first, if you go back to what the Spirit said to Paul, essentially, God said three things to Paul. You're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer, and you're going to go to jail. So when, when Paul's buddies come to him and say, God told us that if you go to Jerusalem, you're gonna suffer and go to jail, Paul would have said, I know, right? I know, that's exactly what he told me, I know. There, there, was, there was no surprise. If you keep reading after Agabus' church drama ministry thing here, um, you find that his prophecy is wrong too, which if his buddies stuck with the tradition of the Old Testament prophets, they would have killed him for it. This is this New Testament, though. Luckily, they did something different. See, it's, it's not, uh, the, the Jews don't tie him up. The Jews don't bind Paul like Agabus prophesied. This big crowd of Jewish guys, uh, of a huge mob of them, um, they drag Paul into the streets and they try to beat him to death. I mean, they're wailing on Paul. And then these Romans find out that he's a, a Roman citizen. And these Roman soldiers essentially save Paul's life. The Jews in no way hand Paul over to the Gentiles. The Jews in no way bind up Paul or tie him up as Agabus suggests. It's just not how it happens. The Romans come in, the Gentiles come in and they arrest Paul. And yeah, they tie him up and put him in jail. But if it wasn't for the Gentiles, the Jewish men would have killed Paul. My point is, the prophecy is all wrong. 
I'm not saying that they didn't hear from God these two different prophecies or that God didn't say something to them or even that God doesn't still speak to I'm not saying any of that stuff. I think, here's what I think happened in both these instances of, of prophecy. On the one hand, we conclude that the Holy Spirit is just a liar and he screws with people. I tend to believe that's not true um, because I just see this beautiful consistency and tenderness in the scriptures. And I think there's a real easy way to make sense of what's happening here in chapter 20 and 21. Um, Notice Agabus doesn't say, the Lord told me to tell you not to go to Jerusalem. He says, this is what will happen in Jerusalem if you go. I, I think what's going on here is the Lord gave these guys a picture of what was waiting for Paul. They gave, he gave them a prediction of what was waiting for Paul, and they assumed that it meant a prohibition. They showed him what was... The Holy Spirit showed Paul's friends what was waiting for Paul should he continue on to Jerusalem. And all of his friends assumed that that meant they interpreted the picture to mean that he shouldn't go. So fundamentally, here's what I think happened. The Spirit said it's going to hurt Paul and cost him. And his friends said, well, obviously that must mean Paul shouldn't go. I don't think for one moment the Spirit ever said, tell Paul not to go. I think he showed his friends, this is what's waiting for your brother. And they said, well, obviously that must mean he shouldn't go. Watch how his friends respond when Paul insists that he's got to go. Verse 14, when it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, we gave up and said, what? The Lord's will be done. A change on that prophecy real quick. You see? If the Lord had said, tell him not to go to Jerusalem, well, all of a sudden they're flipping real fast. But if the Lord just said, hey, this is what's going to happen to Paul, then, well, maybe God really wants him to go there. There's a shift here. Suddenly they think going is the will of the Lord. So again, I'm not saying that they didn't hear from the Holy Spirit or that God doesn't speak to us still. I think many of us are very quick to make interpretations or applications that the Spirit has not given to us. The Spirit shows something to us or says something to us, and then we make all kinds of assumptions about what that must mean for us. Paul is essentially saying to them, I want to follow Jesus. I want to obey Jesus. I want to know Jesus more than I even want to be safe more than I want to be comfortable. I understand the risk. I understand the cost. And Jesus is worth it to me. And I think it, it totally blew his friend's mind. Minds. So there's more going on here, though, than, than what do you do when your friend plays the God card. I think there's lessons in here, and I don't want to make this all, you know, a sermon that, I wish I'd heard when I was 18 or something like that. But there are some, I think, profound lessons that we can take from a story like this. And really, this whole series of events from 21 to the end of Acts. Um, one thing for, for sure that I really wish 
had been shared with me, and I want to make it clear that gets shared with, with you. And maybe you haven't heard this yet. If you're new to Christianity, this is the kind of thing, like, you should write this on your mirror in your bathroom or put it on your, I don't know, put it on your dashboard. Like, this is something you need to be ready for. Following Jesus will eventually be confusing and painful. Um, it won't, following Jesus won't always be confusing and painful. The, I'm not saying that the, the, uh, the hallmark of mature Christianity is like, I'm confused and in pain. Jesus must love me. Um, or that we should run around looking for confusing, painful situations to put ourselves in. Uh, but I think our spiritual growth, uh, it mirrors our physical development in, in so many ways. So all of your physical development in life isn't confusing and painful, but there's chunks of it that are. You know, like, thanks be to God, your whole life isn't like puberty. Any of y'all remember what puberty is like? Anybody got teenagers at home? One lady in the back. It's daylight savings time. I came in with way too high expectations. Lots of, <laughs> lots of nodding heads today. Peace be with y'all. Nap if you got to, all right? Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm going to nap when I get home. If I was here, I'd probably be napping too. I get it. I get it. Listen. All of life isn't like puberty, but some of it is, you know, where your whole body's going crazy and you're sad and happy at the same time and you got a ton of energy and you're exhausted at the same time and like you want mom and dad to give you a big hug and leave you alone at the same time. It's like your brain and your emotions and your body just like donkey kicks you in the chest out of your house and you're just confused and angry and happy and sad, and it's just all happening all at the same time. And that's why teenagers are crazy, you guys. That's why most of us don't like being around teenagers. Um, that's why we need to pray, like, for Stephen Pierce and the S2 team, right, that hang out with our students by choice, right? Pray for them. Uh, like, they, it's so hard to be, they're crazy, and you were crazy too. It's a very difficult time. Um, you get to your, your mid-40s, and all of a sudden, you know, you're young enough to still, like, feel pretty good and be able to do stuff, and now you've got some money, and you can kind of do stuff sometimes for many of us, but you got all these bills to pay, and your sweet little kids aren't, like, sweet and little anymore, and you're kind of looking out, and you're like, this is life for, like, the next 15 or 20 years, and you kind of panic internally and you freak out. Anyone know what we call this, like early 40s experience? The midlife crisis. Yeah, where you start freaking out and you feel like you're suffocating. Your whole life's not a midlife crisis. And it, you never notice that, or ever notice that like people in their 60s don't have a midlife crisis? They're just tired, right? Like they're like, I'm the, that's, but in those early 40 years, you, you freak out. There's a time period there and that's kind of normal when that happens, you get to, it's different for everybody, but kind of early 60s, late 50s, and all of a sudden, these creatures that you spent so much of your life and energy finally like sobered up out of puberty, and then they had the nerve to leave, right? You endured all this craziness, you paid for them, you took care of them, and then they leave. And now mom and dad have to figure out how to be married again because all the kids are gone. 
And there comes another season of confusion and heartache. My, my point is, your whole life isn't painful and confusing, but there are some times, there are some chunks, they don't last a whole long time, but there are times that are very confusing and very painful. And if you don't know that that's normal, if you don't see that that's coming, it, it can shut the whole thing down. It can derail your whole life. And similarly, it, when you're following Jesus, when it gets confusing and when it gets painful, you must not panic. You must not immediately conclude that you've done something wrong or God is upset. Isn't, you see how quickly we make those turns when something doesn't go the way you think it should? How quick we are to either start hunting around our life what is the sin that I've done that God's getting back at me for? Or to get angry at God, how could you do this to me? There are things that God can only do in our souls from the darkness. There are things that God can only do to us um, when we're confused and feeling helpless. And I wish I could explain that better. I just can't. Paul consistently opens his hands off his own life and surrenders it to God. He allows himself to be led even when it meant being led into the darkness. So the word for many of us is we must learn to expect times of confusion, uncertainty, and even pain as normal parts of following Jesus in a broken world. If you come this morning and you're trying, right? and it's just not working, and you're confused, and you're hurting, and you feel like God's done something to you, that doesn't mean you've done something wrong. There's times where being in the darkness and being confused and feeling lost and over your head is normal Christianity. The second thing I think we, we get in this text um, that I see at least, is that Christians make Jesus look beautiful or we show how beautiful he is by suffering well. You see how stunned Paul's friends are when he's just, I'm willing to lay it all down. I'm willing to let it all go. Uh, the verb tense suggests they urged him over and over again. It wasn't a quick conversation. Um, but Paul, knowing what was before him, said, I'm ready to suffer for Jesus. I'm ready to die for Jesus. Why? He makes it real clear in a letter he wrote to another church, which, again, as a side note, he wrote from prison. He says to this other church, to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. I wanna know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I wanna suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. He's saying, for me to live is an opportunity to know Jesus. And if I die, I get to be with Jesus. Everything I do is about knowing Jesus. If I suffer, I understand Jesus more. I understand his pain more. I relate to him more, seeing all he did for me more. He becomes more real to me. His promises become more dear to me. What Paul knew and I think so few of us are willing to believe, let alone test, let alone explore. What Paul knew is that there is a way of knowing Jesus. There is a depth of knowing Jesus that's available to us that makes it possible to endure even the worst kind of suffering. 
there's a, an availability of the presence of Christ to us that even in the worst of our suffering, that when we taste it, we can say it's worth it. And when Christians endure well, it turns the world on its head far more than our cool buildings or our strategies or anything that we do that is it's just so flashy or showy that the world is so enamored by. And like, we, I love miracles. I pray for miracles. But you ever realize how short the shelf life of a miracle is? If you need help, read the Bible. Miracles happen. And a couple days later, people are like, did it really happen? Is God going to do it again? Miracles do not sustain faith. Miracles are great, like inspirational, confirming moments. But boy, does the world move on quick from a miracle. I saw saw God this week, and it will not make headline news. No one's going to write a blog about it. No one's going to podcast about it. No one's going to write a book about it. Um, I, I was with a member in her 70s whose body was racked with cancer, and we were talking. She was telling me stories about her life, just listening. She had a lot of time on her hands, and I just was listening about her life. And at one point, I asked her, I said, Sister, how's your soul? She'd been telling me about her husband and all this kind of stuff, like just about her life. And I said, how's your soul? How encouraged are you? Is God showing up for you? And man, it was like I flipped a switch. She just started crying, her face split in half, just with this big smile. And she just started telling me stories of nurses walking in and being almost like telling secrets, being like, do you know Jesus? I talked to you about Jesus. And she'd be like, I love Jesus. She just started saying all these stories about people showing up to encourage her random people, ways that God was just showing. And she's like, and then I was just, I was discouraged one day. And I asked God, I just cried out to him. I said, God, I need some encouragement. And the clouds broke and the sun came shining through and God gave sunlight right on my face. And I just knew he was saying, I'm with you and I love you. She said story after story of all of these small ways that God was showing up for her. And she looked at me and she said, he's so good to me. So good to me. And Jonah, I'm not scared. I can't wait to meet him. Smile. What she didn't know on Monday is that she would die on Saturday. And I was sitting with her on Friday night. And, you know, I just don't know how these things go. And I, I leaned in, uh, and she's got all the stuff on her, and I'm leaning in, and there's all these people from our church that had been coming in. And I leaned in, and I kissed her, and I said, I love you, sister. See you soon. And she looked at me, and she said, I love our church. God's so good to me. Can't wait to meet him. I'm not scared. I'm so happy. And you look at that and you're just like, what is going on? What is going on? You tell me what is more beautiful. Someone who's going through the worst things life can offer with a full heart, who's calm. The only concern she expressed to me is what will happen? I hope my husband's gonna be okay. That I've been married to for 57 years or something like that. Who they met on a blind date, which is an amazing story. She was suffering well. She was at peace. And it 
was one of the most beautiful things that I have ever seen. And the world has no explanation for that. A woman holding her life so open-handedly, thanking God for the evidence of grace, thanking God for his presence, saying, I can't wait to see him. If I get to live, I get to be with my church, and God gets to show up with me. But if I get to die, can't wait to meet him. Last thing that we see in this text that I saw in my sister this week is that the presence of Christ holds us in all of our pain. We see it here, saw it in, in Shirley's life. The presence of Christ sustains us, gives us courage, and holds us. The Bible does not encourage us to seek out hardship or to ask for difficulty, but it does tell us that when it comes, he will be there. It does promise us that his presence is better than life itself, that there is a depth of knowing Jesus, that you can want to know Jesus, that you can experience him and want that more than you can want your very own life. And and yet with all the faith Paul had, all the certainty he had, he's not a superhero. He still gets scared. He gets beat up. He gets thrown in prison. And in one night, uh, all of a sudden Jesus shows up to him. Listen to what Jesus, Jesus says. This is way ahead, verse chapter 23. It's the same story. It's just drawn out. It's two chapters later. Jesus says to him, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. He says, take courage, take heart, because your work's not done yet. And this is an unusual phrase from Jesus. He only says it a few times. What other times? I'm glad you asked. A few other times in the Gospels, Jesus says this. And this gives us an idea of the state that Paul is in because Jesus only says this a few times and there's such similar situations. It, it reveals to us the kind of shape that Paul is in, sitting there, beating, beaten up all alone in a cell in the middle of the night. In Matthew 6, Jesus says this, take courage, take heart to the disciples when they think Jesus is a ghost walking on the water to come calm a storm. In Matthew 9, Jesus says it to a paralyzed man before he heals him. In Matthew 19, Jesus says it to a woman who can't stop bleeding before he heals her. And he says it one final time in John's gospel. Verse 33, he says to his disciples, I've told you all of this so that you, have, that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you'll have many trials and sorrows, but take courage because I have overcome the world. Jesus, listen to me now. Jesus knows that following him will mean you will end up in places that you are helpless and scared. At some point, you will be in a place where you are helpless and scared. Some of you will end up in more extreme places like Paul and in prison. Some of you will just be surrounded by diapers and unable to keep your eyes open right? Like it's not always going to be in these like extreme exotic places. Some of it will just be in the normal rhythms of life and you feel like you just can't hold on. Some of you will get hooked up to chemotherapy machines. Some of you will help a child write their will, right? Like some of you will go through some of the worst stuff life has to offer. The promise is that Jesus is real tangible presence will meet you in that place. He will give you courage and we can take heart because he is with us. Faith like this is easy to confess. 
We are a young church, and here's the reality. Faith like this is very difficult to have until you're there. Very few of us will be given this kind of faith until we're in the place where we need it. And so as someone who, like, who loves this church and can see what's coming for us, we have to be ready for it. We can't be taken by surprise when it feels like the bottom's dropping out or when circumstances come. Will we be a church? Will we be a people that can say, if this will get us more of Jesus, we are willing to go? Fill in the blank, a blank check to the Lord. And some of us will say, oh yeah, for me, I'll go. Are we gonna be like Paul's friends? We have not sent our last missionary from this church. We sent our first missionary to a place that's illegal to be a Christian. You should see the emails that we send to them saying things like, we are lifting you up to the boss about your concerns for dad. What, you're like, what is that? We're speaking in code because it's, they could get arrested for being a Christian. You think that's the last one we're gonna do that with? No. Are we gonna say, it's dangerous? It could hurt you, so we're not gonna send you. Of course not. What about when it's your child? Will we send our children? You know how many little ones we have over there? We got 150 little kids most Sundays. And in 10 years, those are the pastors. Those are the missionaries. Like, those are the ones we're sending out. If it gets us more of Jesus, will we be willing? Will we be a church? Will we be people who suffer well? If it means we get more of Jesus and the world sees the promises of God are true. Psalm 90, he satisfies us in the morning with his unfailing love. What if we came to communion, which we do every week? What if we began looking to the cross, not only as the assurance that our sins are forgiven, but as evidence of Jesus's promise that he has overcome the world and he is with us. John 16, 33, take courage, Christian. In this life, you will have trouble and sorrow. If you're here this morning and you've got trouble and sorrow in your life, amen, I'm not the only one. If you have trouble and sorrow in your life, then you know Jesus is not a liar. And that means you can believe the rest of that promise too. He has overcome the world and lo, he will be with you always until the end of the age. What if we took communion as evidence that God is with us and we can take heart and we can endure? Thanks be to God. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward uh, and remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, broke it and gave thanks. Said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember, man, if I was a Catholic, we'd be in so much trouble right now. <laughs> Woo! It's just bread though, right? I just looked at the time, and I'll be honest, I was just trying to hustle. I'm sorry. It's late. Some of y'all Catholics, you know what I'm talking about. But I'm going to pray it's true. Uh, he took a cup of wine, and he said, it's all right. <laughs> it's all right. It's not a smooth communion that makes you all right. It's the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Thanks be to God. Uh, our tradition is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. The wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it. Use whichever you'd like. And there'll be gluten-free elements to my left, your right. Uh, I'll pray for us. And then uh, Christians, I invite you to come forward as you're ready. Let's pray.